So I hope this doesn't come as a surprise this morning, but we're going to be talking about Jesus and talking about him quite a bit. And that description you just heard from the book of Revelation in chapter 1 with the white hair and the burning eyes and the glowing face, well, that's Jesus. And it's not typically how we might imagine or picture Jesus. Now, I think there's a couple of reasons for that, but there's, there's two that I think really stand out. You see, first, I think there's a cultural reason we don't like to picture Jesus as this high and supernatural lifted up God. The cultural reason is that generally in the West, people don't tend to be comfortable with either the supernatural or powerful authority. What I mean by that is if you were to go to Christians in Africa, and I've heard missionaries to Africa talk about this, and you were to say, well, let's open the gospel and I'm going to talk to you about angels and spirits and demons, they'd go, oh, well, what kind? Uh, Of course, you talk to anybody here, they need to be convinced of that notion. And so they have a comfort with the supernatural that we don't. We need to be convinced that there's such a thing as angels and demons and spirits and a God who's eternal. And the other thing we tend to be uncomfortable with in the West is authority. So another story, there was, there was a missionary to Korea that I was talking with a long time ago, and he was doing ministry with these, these women who had been re- rescued from sex trafficking in Korea. And he was so frustrated for a while because he was trying to preach the gospel like he'd preach it here. He'd say, well, don't you know God loves you and you have grace and you're forgiven? And he was like, I don't understand why they're not receiving this. And so he changed his tone and he said, well, you need to know there is a God who is a high and heavenly king and he's inviting you into his presence to bow down and worship him. And he says, all of a sudden they believe the gospel. But we would need to be convinced of that. See, we have this big problem in the West with supernaturalism and authority. And so when we come before this kind of Jesus, high and lifted up, with a, sun, with a tongue like a sword, with eyes like fire, with white hair and a long robe, we get a little nervous. Because in the West, we want to do two things. We, we want to understand and we want to be free to choose. And we can't understand the supernatural. And before a high and holy God, we don't have the freedom to choose. And so we tend to, like much of the book of Revelation, we tend to ignore it. So that's the first reason. It's a cultural one. But I think there's another reason we tend to ignore this picture of Jesus in Revelation. And it's a result of the first reason. See, the second reason, I think it's a personal one. I think the personal reason is that this is a much more difficult Jesus to believe in. I don't mean intellectually, I mean with your life. It's a much more difficult Jesus to follow. When I see people become Christians, I always see them come with this temptation to create for themselves a a bespoke Jesus, a tailor-made Jesus that's fit for their life. Let me give you an example. When I was becoming a Christian, I was a teenager, and I was going to this Bible study to investigate Christianity. My goal was to try and disprove it. I didn't want to be a Christian, but if I could get rid of it early, then I didn't have to deal with it. And so I actually started to like it. I really liked the community and the stories. It was great. I learned I was forgiven. I was loved. And then I had a Bible study leader who wanted to open Luke chapter 14 with me. And specifically, he wanted to open a section called The Cost of Discipleship. Well, here's how that section starts. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's Jesus talking. Here's how it ends. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And I got angry with him. I wanted to go back in time. Give me, give me the nice Jesus back. I don't want this Jesus. This is, this is stark. It's difficult. I want the Jesus that fits my life. And so several people come to Jesus and they want that. And so maybe as a result of being a Western person and you can't understand the supernatural Jesus or you don't like that he has all this authority, when people come to Jesus, we tend to want to make a bespoke version of Jesus, one that's made for me, 
I can believe in him. We have a special arrangement worked out, and that's my Jesus. It's my version of Jesus in my head. And there's a problem with that, though. The problem with both of these, if we tend to ignore the supernatural vision of Jesus, is that you can't take Jesus piecemeal, taking the parts you like and getting rid of the parts you don't. I mean, imagine if somebody tried to do that with you. Well, you have a great sense of humor, but I hate your opinions on everything. I mean, you look great, but your cooking is awful. I don't want to be around you. You wouldn't stand for it. That's not love or like at all. And so if we wouldn't stand for it, why would we expect Jesus to do it? And so the focus as we look through Revelation 1 is going to be this. Who is Jesus actually? Who does he want us to know that he is? And so to do that, this is for the note takers here, we're going to look at four questions. Four questions we're going to look at. The first question is this. What does John actually see? What does John actually see? Second, how do we know if we've seen it? Third, why do we need to see it? And fourth, how do we get to see it? All right, four questions. So that first one, what does John actually see? Let's do some of the heavy lifting and actually unpack this vision of Jesus. Now, it's important to know as we go through the book of Revelation, that Revelation is a book of what's called apocalyptic prophecy. You might know the word apocalypse. You use it to describe zombie movies and other things. That word is a Greek word. It means revelation or something revealed. So what John is doing is he's following a pattern of prophets throughout the Bible. And when prophets become prophets, they have to be called by God. And there's a pattern of that calling. And it always starts with a vision. See, when we looked at that text from Exodus and Moses had this vision of the burning bush, it started with seeing. And so let's look at verse 12 and you can see how John's calling starts. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So that's how John's introduced to his prophetic calling. And just to show you the pattern, I could compare some of the other prophets. Isaiah in Isaiah 6 goes into the temple and he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his robe filled the temple. They both have long robes. Ezekiel says he was by a place called the Shabar Canal and I saw visions of God. He also saw some wild stuff. But there's one in particular that I really want to highlight and it's the prophet Daniel. This is what happens to Daniel. It sounds so similar to Revelation 1. Listen to this. He says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. It looks from every regard like Daniel and John are looking at the same person. It's because they are. There's two things I want you to see from this pattern. The first is, is what they're actually seeing. John is not just seeing this one-off novel vision of Jesus. What John is seeing is the same thing that prophets have seen since the beginning of time. He's seeing Jesus in his glory. So it eliminates the possibility as we read this that what we're looking at is this alternative version of Jesus. You know what I mean. The picture of Jesus you have in your head 
He's a baby, he's on the cross, he's doing a miracle, he's walking around. That's the main one, how you see him in The Chosen. And then there's this other picture of Jesus where you see all these wild things. Oh, well, that's nice, but let me get back to the main Jesus. I like that one. It's actually the other way around. You see, the frequency of these visions of Jesus like this indicates that this is who Jesus has been since before eternity. And so it's not that Jesus goes human being the main version and then we have this other high and lifted up version. It's actually that him in his humanity is the extraordinary thing. That's the alternative occurrence. That is what would strike every single prophet as unbelievably amazing, to see Jesus humbled like a man. I mean, remember how the book of John starts. It says, and the word became flesh. Or how Paul writes in Philippians, he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. So if you're trying to picture Jesus, you have to see this. So that's what we're seeing. We're seeing Jesus as he is, but why are we seeing it? That's the second thing you gotta see from this pattern. The reason we're seeing it, the reason all these prophets were given this vision of Jesus is because, to put it very lightly, God is demonstrating his credentials. He wants the prophets he's calling to serve him to see who he is so that as they serve, they have a sense of the weight and majesty of what they're doing, a sense of the glory of the person they're serving, so that when John is prophesying and speaking to these churches, he's not doing so as if he's just serving any authority. He's doing so as if he's serving the living God. And so what those two things put together mean is that if when we come to Jesus and our view of him is less than that, we're not only losing an accurate picture of Jesus, we're actually losing the picture that causes us to serve him with commitment and vigor. See how that happens? You see, if we're not seeing Jesus for this, if we're ignoring that part of him, not only are we missing who he is, but we're missing what Jesus gave John, which is a vision so that he could actually live rightly for him. And so what happens is we lessen Jesus. I think a good word for that is, is domesticate. It's the same thing. When we take Jesus piecemeal, take the parts we like, ignore the ones we don't, we try and domesticate Jesus. And that word is very intentional because it's what God has, people have always tried to do with God. It's what people do when they make idols. They don't want to worship a living God they can't control. They want a statue that they can give a, a, a bowl of rice to and then say, okay, well, now I get my money, right? Or they want a God who they can coax into doing good things for them. They want to exchange good behavior for, for good favors. It's domesticating God. To give a definition to it, I don't think we have to look any further than the French bulldog. Stay with me. Think about dogs for a minute. I think about this way too much. Think about the wolf. The wolf used to be the symbol of terror. I mean, you didn't know where it was. It hunted in packs. We have all these movies where it'll be completely dark in the forest until you see sets of eyes light up. It was uncontrollable. It was wild. And some of you own French bulldogs, the result of decades and hundreds of years of human domestication. Something that used to be wild and uncontrollable, you would avoid because it could kill you. Now it fits in your lap. And you can smack it on the nose if it does something wrong. And you can put it outside. You can do whatever you want with it. People do a similar thing with Jesus. Well, look, Jesus is nice, but much like my house pet, he's great when he's at home, but I don't want to bring him outside. It'll make people uncomfortable. I'll have to keep him on a leash. You know, I've got to control him. Well, it's great. I love getting the comforts of Jesus when I come home, but if I have a real problem, I need to go and solve it. You know, he can't. It's my job. 
Do you see the comparison there? What ends up happening is we, we domesticate Jesus. We make him into a, an idea. And that Jesus, who, who we've reduced to a means to an end, a way to make our lives more comfortable, well, his commands are received like suggestions. Well, that's a good idea. His life is just taken as a, a good set of moral teachings, maybe a set of moral examples. And his ultimate sacrifice, giving forgiveness, well, that's, that's more like a vending machine when we've domesticated Jesus. Well, thank you, Jesus, I can be on my way now. And that might work for a little bit. But then you look at life and you say, well, why am I not transformed? Why is it so hard to obey what God's telling me to do? Why can't I seem to actually follow through in any of the things I'm praying about, that I'm thinking about? And if this is your view of Jesus, of course, I would never expect that to happen. You want transformation and renewal and you've domesticated the very person who's offering to provide that to you. You don't get transformed by your dog. You get comforted by it. And if that's all we have Jesus here to do, then, then we're out of luck. And so the question has to come up, well, how do I know? How do, how do I know if I've done this with Jesus? So the first question, what was John saying? And the second, how do we know if we've seen it too? Because we might have it in our heads, well, well, yeah, other people do that, obviously, but how do I know if it's me? Well, all we have to do is look at how John responded to it. And if we have the same response, it means we've seen the same thing. So look at verse 17 of this chapter with me. This is what John writes. He said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. If you were to look back at those other prophets that I mentioned, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, even Moses, Moses and Aaron do this, Abraham does this, every time they're given this vision of God, the same thing happens. They fall down on their face. Every single time, they see it and they fall down. What it lets us know, it, it, it's a natural, involuntary response to what they're seeing. And it can be difficult to sort of understand why this is, and so forgive me if I have to use what I call Christianese, it might be language that's only understandable by Christians, but I'll, I'll try to explain it the best I can. What they're seeing is so holy and majestic that it narrows their understanding of what matters in life to Jesus alone. That is what they're seeing is too holy for them that everything, including their life, is suddenly irrelevant, such that their body matches their heart and they fall to the ground. This can be impossible for us to understand because even our best moments of life, we don't do this. But I'll try to make a comparison. Husbands, when you saw your bride walk down the aisle, did you fall down? Why? Was it not the most beautiful thing you'd ever seen? Wives, you can look over and just like glare at them now if you want. Truly really drill into them. Well, why not? Why didn't we fall down? It should have been the same thing, right? Our, our focus on life should have narrowed completely into that one person who's going to be ours forever. They look gorgeous. The most beautiful day of their lives and we don't fall down. You know, if you're lucky, wives, you might get a tear out of the husband, but that's it. That's all you're getting, a tear. But no falling down. The other way that this can happen is if we're in a situation that's extremely threatening. Hopefully that wasn't anyone's wedding day. But... That is the other thing. When we see something that's extremely threatening, it narrows our focus away from everything else. It, everything becomes irrelevant as we look at this one thing. I was hiking in my backyard in high school, and when I, where we lived, it was in the bay, and then behind it were all these hills, and so you could just walk right through the gate and up to these hills. And if you know me at all, you know all of my senses are terrible. I can barely see, I can barely hear, and on top of that, I can barely pay attention. So I am... I'm so glad that we have French bulldogs and not wolves. That's what I'm saying. 
But I was on this hike, and as I was not paying attention, I look down to my right, I'm sort of on the path still, and I see what I think initially is like a big dog. And when you see a big dog, you're like, oh, that's sweet. And then I realized it was not a big dog, it was a big cat. And that's different. Because big dogs are great, big cats are terrifying. And so all I could do is stand here and look, and this cat was looking through my soul. And all I did was walk backwards. But what it did is it made everything else in the world irrelevant. Homework, who cares? Graduation, I don't know, college, forget about it. There's a, I don't know what it was. If anybody knows, you can tell me. But there's a giant cat in front of me. But I didn't fall down. I didn't fall down because my life still didn't become irrelevant. I still had a choice there. I could still run, I could still move, I could still do something. It's not what happens when you come to see the glory of God. Everything is undone. Nothing else matters. That's it, even your own life. He's too holy, he's too high, he's too mighty, you can't stand. And so the question is very simple. If we want to know if our vision of Jesus is as John describes, do you fall down? Do you fall down? Let me be more specific. When you come to Jesus, when you read about him, when you pray before him, does your understanding of how you spend your money fall down? Does your sexuality fall down? The way you want to use your body and, and treat other people's bodies, does that fall down and die before him? Does your understanding of the future and relationships and friendships, do those things fall down? What about your reputation? The desire to be loved and wanted and known, does that fall down? Let me put it a different way. Does your entire life, as you would normally have it, as you would normally choose it if it was just you, come to an end before Jesus so that him and his majesty can be the one to tell you how to stand up and live your life? Does it all come to an end? And here's the thing, I know some people in their heads are, are gonna be like, well, Nick, I, I try really hard to fall down. I've been trying hard to fall down for so long. That's not the question. Effort's not in play here. So you don't try to fall down. It's not about effort, it's about vision. John doesn't see Jesus and then try to fall down. He sees him and then falls down. It's the natural and voluntary response to a holy God like that. And so our question's gonna be, naturally, I hope it is, well, how? How do I see this then so that I can fall down? Because I want to. Because we feel like we've domesticated Jesus. How do I actually do that? But there's another question. Right before that, before we can see how we actually fall down, there are some people here, I'm certain of it, who are asking the question, well, why do I need to? So the first two questions were, what is John seeing? Why does he, how do we know if we've seen it? And the third one is, is look, why do you need to? Because you know, you might say in your head, well, well, Nick, this is all well and good, but all this falling down stuff sounds really, honestly, inconvenient. What's wrong with my vision of Jesus? Seems to make my life better. It seems to make things a little easier. I get to go to church, have a community. Why can't I just have that? Well, let me put it as simply as I can. If you don't see Jesus for all he is, or if you're not willing to, then you don't see him at all. I'll say it again. If you don't see Jesus for all that he is, or you're not willing to, you aren't seeing him at all. Here's what that means. If your goal is to create a version of Jesus that doesn't change your life too much, that doesn't challenge you, that doesn't offend you, you aren't worshiping a person, you're worshiping an idea. And it's the same thing 
that teenage girls do when they want to be in love. They write a boy's name a million times in a notebook. And then they imagine what that boy is going to be like. And they write this whole story in their head about this boy. And then they say, oh, I'm in love. And if you're a parent and you hear this, what do you tell them? You go, honey, you're not in love. You're in love with the idea of this person. You're not in love. You just, you just want to feel love. And so if your condition for accepting Jesus is that he be less than he's presented in Scripture, that he's not the God of the universe, that he's merely a moral teacher, merely a helper on the way to, for you to do the things you want to do, I'll tell you the same thing. You're not loving Jesus. You just want to be spiritual. You're not following him. You're in love with the idea of him. And, and here's what I'll say. The reason you're doing that, the reason that the only way you're going to treat Jesus in life is as somebody who's going to help you out with things is because many of us think that's all we need. Well, all I need is a boost in life. I just need a good moral example. I just want a spiritual side of life so I can enjoy that and do that. And you look around, everybody does that. Everybody tries to cultivate some spiritual side of life. And it's because all, all we tend to think we need, I just need a little aid. I just need a couple moral principles. I just need a spiritual side so I can work out how to get married and have kids and be nice to other people. But I don't want a Lord, I don't want a God, but here's the truth. You need so much more than a boost. You need salvation. You need so much more than a boost to the life you're living. You need salvation. And so it's why you need to hear what Jesus says to John once he falls down. Look at verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death in Hades. This also always happens with prophets. They see God, they fall down and something remarkable happens next and I never noticed this until I tried to look into it for this text. God always touches them. He always places a hand on them. It's so remarkable because usually through the Bible, whenever there's something holy, everyone's commanded not to touch it. Don't touch it or you'll die. When Moses went on the mountain, you can't touch the mountain, you'll die. When the tabernacle, don't touch it, you'll die. And so Jesus, instead of having John touch him, he says, John, I'm gonna put my hand on you. And he says to, those, says to him those words. You know what that's saying to John? It's Jesus saying to John, yes, John, I am too holy for you. I'm far too holy for you. Everything else falls away when you come in front of me. But you know what? I'm inviting you in to knowing me. Because I'm not only the one who's lived forever, I'm the one who entered the world. I died. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and hell. And Jesus is offering no less than that. He's looking at us and us who are not holy enough to come before him. He's reaching out and placing his hand on us saying, don't be afraid. I'm actually inviting you to come in and know me actually inviting you to come and know me. And this is the remarkable thing that he does in this word. He takes the incarnate Jesus who was born as an infant and he ties it to his being the living one who lives forever, the first and the last. Did you see that? He said, I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. What he's doing for John is drawing that line that so many of us want to separate. He's saying the, the, the baby Jesus in the manger in me, the Lord of light, we are the same person. We're the exact same person. Something no other religion or philosophy ever claims. That the God of the universe who made everything entered the world, lived and died for you and me to forgive us of our sins and then invites us to come before him. He is still too holy for us, reaches out, touches us, lifts us up 
and commissions us to serve him. So here's what all this means. Why do you need to have this vision of Jesus? Because it's the only one that's actually gonna do anything for you. It's the only one that's actually going to give you life. And see, to embrace Jesus for who he really is, what you have to do is you have to embrace the comfortable with the uncomfortable. You have to embrace the comfortable, the old stories you know, the friendly and loving and humble Jesus with the uncomfortable, the supernatural and the mysterious and the godly and the holy. You must be his servant and his friend. You must be his beloved and his subject. We must see him for all that he is or we don't see him for who he is at all. And so how do we actually do that? How do we get to that point? Let's look at the last question. How do I get this vision of Jesus? Look with me at verses 19 and 20. Right, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You see, remember that this is a book of prophecy. And prophets have two roles. They are meant to do two things through the Bible. They are meant to foretell, that is to look forward and tell people what's going to happen, and they're supposed to foretell, to tell people the truth about what they're doing right now. And so if you read all the books of prophecy, you'll see those two things, foretelling and foretelling. And so that's what Revelation is doing. That's what John's doing. He's foretelling. If you read Revelation, you'll see this is what's coming. Jesus is coming, but he's also foretelling. He's telling people who are struggling in the midst of a suffering church, this is what you need to do now. Here's the truth. And so Jesus tasks him with this job. Write these things. And these is referring to what John just saw. So he's telling John, what you just saw, give to other people. That's the goal of Revelation. Write the things that you see and give them to other people so that the church might have the same vision that John has. So that we might see Jesus like John sees Jesus. Are we following? That was a lot of spiderweb connections. But it's interesting because he begins doing this in chapter two. He writes these seven letters to seven churches. And so Jesus starts unraveling and revealing this mystery. He says, look, the seven lampstands, those are seven churches. And these seven stars, these are the angels or the messengers to those churches. And so John begins to write messages to those churches. And here's what's really remarkable. I have to give Kyle credit for saying this because I didn't see it. He helps me a lot with these sermons, so tell him good job today. But this is what you can see. If you look at these letters in Revelation 2, and we don't have time to go through all of them, each one of them opens with to the church in blank. So it'll be an early church like Ephesus or Smyrna. And then it'll say from the one who has blank. And what John does is he picks all these different aspects of how Jesus appears. So for example, when he's writing to Ephesus, he says, to the church in Ephesus, from the one in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. To Thyatira, he writes, to the church in Thyatira, from the one whose eyes are like a burning flame. What is he doing here? He's giving each of these churches a specific view of Jesus fit to their needs and sins. The first thing this means for us is if you're looking to, to see Jesus today, if you want to get this vision of him, it doesn't mean you've got, you got to go home in the closet and close your eyes really tight until you see him. No, it means you need to read Revelation. You need to embrace God's word because God's word gives us what we really need, which is not a general view of Jesus, not a decision to be like, I'm going to just try to look harder for Jesus, look around Jesus, but a specific look at Jesus. For example, this is what he does for Ephesus. He says to the church in Ephesus, 
from the one in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And then he proceeds to correct them for their sins, to have the love they had at first. Well, how do those things connect? He's saying, well, Jesus is in your church and he's in the midst of all churches, so act like he's there, Ephesus. And so what we need this morning is a specific look at Jesus. We need to be willing to take a hard look at who he is. And I think if we go back to the beginning of this text, we can do that. If you want to follow along in verses 12 onward, please do. But I'm going to invite you to look at Jesus. And some of these ways are difficult. So let me mimic the style of John as we look at Jesus. To those here this morning who are depressed and weary, tired, full of guilt and shame from ongoing sin in your heart and your life, from the way the world treats you, look to the white hairs of Jesus like perfect wool, like snow, and know that he has washed you that clean. You are made that clean. Look to his hair. That's how white he has made your soul. You are clean. To those here who are openly living in sin or hoping to keep it secret or have minimized its wrongdoing, look at the blazing eyes of Jesus who is the judge of all sin. He sees you. He sees you. You are not hidden from him. Your deception, your abuse, your sin, it's all visible. So see Jesus and repent. Be made pure by his love and forgiveness because he is faithful to forgive us of all sin. To those here who are discouraged by the wrongdoing of others, who are victims of abuse and slander and who have been oppressed, see the feet of Jesus like burnished bronze and take heart for underneath those pierced feet will Jesus crush all evil in this world and soon. To those who are forgetful and idle, who find no urgency in obeying or serving the Lord or serving others, hear the powerful voice of Jesus like many roaring waters and be moved to serve him, compelled to glorify him, to rejoice in who he is. To those who are in worry for the future, racked with anxiety and fear, look to Jesus and see how he holds the seven stars of his churches. Know that he upholds all things and loves you. He knows your needs, and he will indeed fill them. To those who are lost and confused, who have become callous to the gospel, whose hearts have become cold, see the sharp two-edged sword that is Jesus' tongue, the word that pierces hearts, and be humbled and encouraged yet again, for he speaks good news to you. And to all those who are in darkness of any kind, be it burnout, Loss of hope, mourning, depression, PTSD, or loneliness. Look on the face of Jesus that, that shines like the sun in full strength. Come to the light and know that by his light, he will light your way forward, even one step at a time. Christ Presbyterian Church, see Jesus. Take a look at him. See Jesus in all his glory and fall down. And don't stop looking until you do. For he is the one who will pick you up, place his hand upon you, who is the living one, who has died and is alive forevermore, who holds the keys to death and Hades. And take heart, for he's coming soon. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.